The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. 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 Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed. Two of the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. And for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about. I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to call in at any time, uh, comment or a question or anything like that, uh, the number is available, 803-619-9855, 803-619-9855. Please stick to the topic if you want to call in. We'd appreciate and love to hear from you, by the way. Uh, if you'd like to check us out online, please do so, sonsoflibertyradio.com and also sonsoflibertymedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of the radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right. You can see the face that's made for radio. Head over to sonsoflibertymedia.com, and there you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side of the page is a Bradley show from the previous day, uh, yesterday. And uh, if you'd like to check that out, you can do so. And um, that'll be available up until 3 o'clock Eastern, at which time he'll be live in that little area right there. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button. Blow it up on whatever device you got there. Look for the Rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner. Click on that. You can join us in the chat on Rumble. A lot of friends over there this morning. Good morning, you guys. Good to see you. Um, <clears throat> we'll have a special announcement here in just a moment. But uh, while you're over there on Rumble, the channel is Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Please subscribe to that channel as well. And then also, before it's news.com, top of the page there. And we appreciate those guys giving us a spot over there, both for the morning and afternoon show. Right up under where we're streaming live on SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, you can sign up for our email news- newsletter. It goes out, um, you know, late afternoon, early evening time, and uh, depending on how quickly I get done with everything. But that's all the articles we have for the day at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, including the morning show archive. So if you're looking for any of the things that we reference here uh, during the morning show, I do put that in sort of an article form so you can go and, yeah, do that. That's it. All right. Um, okay. This morning, um, just uh, something just struck me yesterday. I heard this in the news yesterday. This guy, um, Remy Lucidi, this is the guy who was climbing the skyscraper. <laughs> and I don't know, he got stuck or something, tried to knock. I mean, he's doing this in Hong Kong. Um, and got stuck outside the building somehow 
knocked on a window, lost his footing, fell 700 feet to his death. And the first thing that, that I thought of about this story was exactly what Satan said to Jesus about, he'd said to throw himself off the temple and the angels would do him, wouldn't let, it, let his you know, foot get stubbed or anything like that. The, the angels would uphold him. Doesn't scripture say that yet? Yeah, it says that. And Jesus comes back and he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And I, I got to tell you, a lot of this extreme kind of sports and stuff, there's a part of me that says there's a lot of people tempting God. I'm not saying it doesn't seem cool and stuff. I'm, I'm not saying that. It, if it were, if it didn't seem cool, if it didn't do that, people wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't do it. But I just thought about this guy. He's young fella, 30 years old. Loses his life. For what? Climbing a building? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyway, that was one of the news items that I that I saw. Um, actually, I heard it on the radio, and then uh, and then I ended up seeing it. The other one is uh, this one here. Uh, you know, Kevin Spacey was declared innocent. Um, I don't know what that means anymore because our justice system is so corrupt. I, the innocent seem to be the ones who are guilty, and the guilty seem to be the ones who are innocent many times. It's just, it's crazy. Did you know that three of his accusers had died within a year? They never made it to court. Don't you find that a little odd? <laughs> now, he beat nine counts of sexual assault earlier, what was it, last week. Um... But he's already confessed to deviant sexual behavior. That's already come out of his mouth. Not in a sexual assault way, obviously. He's not confessing to that. But he has confessed to deviant sexual behavior. But he had three people who had accused him of this die within, I think it was uh, 2019. I just find that very, very odd. I don't know what you think about that. But we're not going to talk about that today. These are some of the... You know, I guess the bad stories, if you will. When to, what preserves our society? And I'm not talking about the evil in our society. I'm not talking about uh, the quote-unquote American way as it's termed now. I'm talking about the society at large from just imploding on itself because we're right on the verge of it. What's the, thing that's in, what's the thing that's keeping that from happening? Well, first and foremost, we would say it's the Creator Himself. He is the one who holds all things together by the word of His power. So we know He's the one that's behind it. But I want you to go with me to the words of Scripture this morning, because this is very important, because what I see from many is, is they think all solutions are quote unquote political. We got to write a law about this. We got to write a law about that. We got to do. That's not the solution. This, there are spiritual solutions that play a part in politics. There's no question about that. Um, but it is the church itself. That's why God leaves us here. It is a, we are preservative. He says so himself. And let's start here in what is termed as the Beatitudes. And let's read a little bit of what Jesus himself says. King Jesus, this is what he has to say to his people and to the world at large. This comes from Matthew chapter 5. And here's what we have. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain 
And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And then he says this, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So he lays out all these beatitudes here, and these are characteristics of the individual. that He's talking about those who are poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. If you mourn. Now, the mourning is not with worldly sorrow and things, but those who are troubled, those who are even bothered by their own sin, and they are, they're convicted by that. Remember, we read that out of uh, Ezra, where the people were convicted and they wept and they were on their faces and the men had to come along and say, okay, now it's time to get up and rejoice and feast and give thanksgiving to God because he's forgiven us of our sin. He says they'll be comforted. The meek, those, they, they have the strength to just pull a Samson on somebody, but they restrain themselves. He says they're the people who are going to inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they're going to be filled. Merciful, they'll obtain mercy, and so on. He goes down. But then he, he kind of tops it off by saying, ye, now this is the part where he jumps from blessed are those, and now he says, Ye are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. It's kind of interesting. I was looking at um, <clears throat> several things about the history of salt. It's really uh, pretty fascinating. Um, I, I, I read several articles on the history uh, of salt. This one comes actually from history.com. Salt, do, salt doesn't just make your food tastier, it's actually required for life. Sodium ions help the body perform a number of basic tasks, including maintaining the fluid in blood cells and helping the small intestine absorb nutrients. We can't make salt in our own bodies, so humans have always had to look to their environments to fill the need. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Again, the Creator knows what we need. He has provided it in the creation for us. But some people will tell you, well, it's just evolution. All this around us is just, we're evolving. No, actually, we've devolved. That's what we've done. We become degenerate, not 
and we need to be regenerated. And that's what God does in us by the work of his spirit and his word. But it says, early hunters could get a steady supply of salt from meat, but agricultural groups had to seek it out by following animal tracks to salt deposits. The ancient Egyptians were the first to realize the preservation possibilities of salt. Sodium draws the bacteria causing moisture out of foods, drying them and making it possible to store meat without refrigeration for extended periods of time. Delicacies like our modern day uh, Parma hams, gravlicks, I've never had any of that, brassaola and bacala are all the result of salt curing. And, uh, you know, if you're down here down south, uh, some good jerky is <laughs> done with salt as well. Uh, but back in the day, the type of preservation wasn't limited to meat. Mummies were packed in salt too. In fact, when mummies were shipped down the Nile as cargo, they were taxed in the salted meat bracket. <laughs> oh, they, I, I just think of the irony of that. That's just interesting. Being when you talk about a death tax, <laughs> there it is. Um, so how did they get their salt? Well, in this particular article, it says uh, the Shanghai province of China has a salt lake, Yunqing, and it's estimated that wars were being fought over control of its salt. Can you imagine? I mean, we're fighting over oil today and other resources and minerals and things in other lands. I mean, our own government's going after people in our country over the minerals and resources of their lands. Fighting over salt. That's what they were doing. Salt was gathered uh, from the lake during the dry season when the water evaporated and flats of salt were exposed. The Egyptians got their salt from Nile marshes, while early British towns clustered around salt springs. In fact, the witch suffix in English place names uh, like Middlewich and Norwich is associated with areas where salt working was a common practice. Did you know any of this stuff? I mean, it's pretty fascinating history. And in our own history, during the award enslaved the states, uh, salt was a precious commodity used not only for eating, but for tanning leather. Anybody ever done an animal skin and you have to scrape all that stuff off the back of it and then you salt it down and you scrape it again and you salt it again, salt it a couple of times so that it, that leather holds up, that skin holds up and it doesn't just like rot. Dying clothes and preserving troop rations. Confederate President Jefferson Davis even offered a military service waiver to anyone willing to work on salt production on the coast. The ocean was the only reliable source of salt for the South since inland production facilities were so valued they became easy targets of Union attacks. And there is a, a number, just a number of uh, interesting things here. Uh, pertaining to salt. Let me give you a couple others and then we'll get back into, into the scripture. Because I think as we read some of these things of the way it's been done in, in history, this, this leads up to things that these people would have understood. They lived in a whole different culture than we do. They didn't have the refrigeration in the same ways we do. They did have means of keeping things cold, but nevertheless, uh, salt was a, was a big commodity here in the in the time in which Jesus was speaking. Um, another piece out of seasalt.com, 
It talks about that which was used, again, by the, the Phoenicians in the Mediterranean area and, and such. And then it said, even today, the history of salt touches our daily lives. The word salary was derived from the word salt. Some people used to get paid in salt for their work. Salt was highly valued and its production was legally restricted in ancient times. So it was historically used as a method of trade and currency. At least it had some value. <laughs> but stuff that we're carrying around in our, our wallet, even the Fed says, has no value except in your own mind. The word salad, I like this. The word salad also originated from salt and began with the early Romans assaulting their leafy greens and vegetables. Undeniably, the history of salt is both broad and unique, leaving its indelible mark in cultures around the world. Um, I, I just, I find all of this kind of stuff really, really interesting. I really do. So there's, we've seen that salt is used in trade. We've seen that it's used in the preservation of foods. Uh, we talked a little bit about it yesterday in Ezekiel chapter 16, how they rubbed their babies in salt after they had been cleansed. They, they, they rubbed their babies in salt. And so it's a, it's a really interesting thing. Now, the salt that we get today, this refined kind of salt and stuff, is not really good for you. Um, my wife gets the um, pink Himalayan stuff, uh, which is supposed, to be, is supposed to be good for you. Uh, but a lot of the, the salts come out of the, the seas, out of things that, that are both dead and living. Um, and then you have salt mines as well from where these things are. So when Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, you're the salt of the earth. What is he saying there? Now, he's, he, get, he goes on later in his ministry, and he talks about the things of value. He talks about the kingdom being like that. We talked about that in the kingdom series of how a man will go out, and he'll find something that is, is very precious. He'll find this treasure on this land, and he'll sell all he's got to go buy the land just so he can get the treasure. Or the pearl of great price, if you will. That he goes and he, he finds this pearl, and he sells all he has, and he goes and buys the pearl. And the picture there is of the kingdom and of how even not only is do, do, do men give up everything they have to follow Christ, but Christ gave up everything to purchase his church as well. One of the things that he gets to here is he says, if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? What's happened continually, and I'll tell you, you can, you can see it. If you take a big overview of the history of the church here in the United States, and I'm sure it happens this way throughout history, but if you look at it in, in the, the United States, one of the things you see is when the church first came and formed here, one of the things that, it, that many of those little colonies did was they had established themselves upon the law of God. That the law of God was what was to rule them. We've we made mention of several of these. The Mayflower Compact, we made mention of that, the Connecticut Covenant that was made, and, and others. And they were explicit. It, it wasn't like you had to guess at what was going on there. You had to try to figure out, you know, was this part of the law of God? I mean, they, they gave the scripture references. They pointed back to God. They pointed back to the scriptures. They pointed back to King Jesus. 
And so they recognized that these things were necessary in order that they might have a uh, prosperous uh, and fruitful society at peace. At least in general. That's what they sought to do. So they had these things on. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, how's it going to be salted again? They can't. It's not useful for anything. It can't preserve anything. It can't flavor anything. By the way, you know, uh, it's not just the preserving. It is the flavoring. The Christians are supposed to be in the society, not only to preserve it, but to give it flavor, if you will. It, they, we are to be the ones who are supposed to be setting up the culture. That's part of what it is to disciple the nations. You don't disciple the nations and there's no fruit from it, right? There's no practical aspect. It's just, well, we're just waiting on Jesus to come back or we're waiting to go to heaven. That's not what it's about. It's about life. Jesus said he came to give us life and that more abundant. And so there is a reality in which our discipleship, what we teach, should result in a change of life. And if it's a change of life of one person and that becomes multiple people because you're supposed to be discipling, then you form little subcultures, little sub-societies, if you will, within the bigger society. And that is exactly what happened in the New Testament as the disciples went out. If you'll recall, when Paul cast out uh, the, the demon out of the, the woman who was following around going, these are the servants of the Most High, listen to them. I mean, any evangelist today would have just loved this fortune teller chick because she was promoting him. But Paul has a discernment and he he cast that demon out of that, that girl, and her master, who was making a lot of money off of her, was really ticked off. And you'll read in the passage where it says that they accused them of being those who turned the world upside down. Actually, they were setting it right side up. The world was upside down. It was backwards, like kind of like it is today. And it needs to be turned right side up. And who are the people to do that? Is that Donald Trump who's going to do that? No. It's not going to be Donald Trump that does that. Donald Trump's upside down himself. And there's a lot who name the name of Christ who've lost their saltiness, by the way, because they continue to follow him. Not even seeing the wickedness that's there. And I'm telling you what, you're setting yourself up to be trampled underfoot. You, you, mark my words, you're setting yourself up to be trampled underfoot. And probably by the very one you're supporting. So keep that in mind. So how do we do that? Well, let's go back into, into the text of Scripture here. And let's take a look at how salt is used throughout the Scripture. One of the interesting things is, is how it was used as part of the worship of God. For instance, when we go into Exodus, and this will give us a little bit of a picture Hopefully in your mind, as we read these passages and we see how they're used, you'll start to, things will start to click in your mind as to how this is used. So Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 4, this is what we read. And thou shalt offer them before, let's just back up a little bit here. On the second day, verse 22, on the second day, thou shalt offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they did cleanse it with the bullock. 
And when thou hast made an end of cleansing it, thou shalt offer a young bullock without blemish and a ram out of the flock without blemish. And thou shalt offer them before the Lord, and the priests shall, ca shall cast salt upon them, and they shall offer them up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. So as part of this sacrifice that's being offered, this sin offering, what do we find? Well, the priests are going to take and offer it, but they're going to cast salt upon them. They're going to cast salt upon them as, uh, as they're being offered. This isn't the only time. They're, this is also a part of the, the ceremony that takes place inside the, um, it, well, at this time, the tabernacle. This comes from Exodus 30 and uh, verse 34. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stack and onicha, I, I hope I'm saying these words right, and galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be a like weight, and thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary. <laughs> Boy, I picked some some things to do today, didn't I? Tempered together, pure and holy. And um, the idea of um, the use, this was the incense that was used here in the tabernacle later in the temple. And this incense was to be used uh, as, well, let's look here and you'll hear what he says. Thou shalt beat some of it very small put and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. In other words, you don't make this stuff up to have in your house and to burn incense in your house with this stuff. This is just for me. It's just for my worship. That's what God's saying. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. It's just separate for him. It's not for you, for the creatures. It's for the Creator. Whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. So it's a very, very serious thing here. Uh, the perfume and this, this mixture of all of these spices and things were for the Lord, and they were for his worship. Then we read in Ezra chapter 6, and we read here in uh, verse 9 that it also becomes a part of this, uh, this temple offering. Verse 9 of uh, chapter 6 of Ezra. And that which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs, for the burnt... I don't know why I think of that song my kids sing. Rams, lambs, tomatoes, potatoes. You guys probably have heard that if you got kids. Um, for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests, which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons." So we see salt is used all throughout worship, the worship of God. Now, if you think about this, you start thinking of in terms, especially with the sacrifices, you would your mind might go to passages like Romans 12, where he says we're to offer our bodies as what? 
living sacrifices. Well, a sacrifice doesn't live, does it? <laughs> I mean, you, you take the sacrifice in there specifically to kill it, to take its life, right? So it's interesting when you see these things, you start to see this picture of salt and how it's been used, not only in history, uh, in, in the, the ancient world, but also in the biblical history, how, how it's used as well. Let's take a look at a couple others. And I promise you, we, we go somewhere with it. <laughs> Did you know salt was used as a covenant? Mm -hmm. There's at least three places in the scriptures where salt is used as a covenant. Check this out. This is from Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. And again, the all part of the worship of God, but it's it, there's a covenant here. All the heath offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer unto the Lord have I given thee, and thy sons and thy daughters with thee, by a statute forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord unto thee, and to thy seed with thee. Hmm. It is a covenant of salt. That's not the only time he mentions that. Leviticus uh, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, And every oblation of thy meat offering. So again, part of the worship of God here. Every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings, thou shalt offer salt. Hmm. One more. This comes from 2 Chronicles 13 and verse 5. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Isn't that interesting? There was a commentator that said salt was used as a symbol of friendship and loyalty. In biblical days, friendship and loyalty are sealed with salt. Why salt? Because the essence of salt is simple. It does not change. When you dissolve salt in water, you know you can dissolve it. We do it all the time in our cooking. When you add salt to your soups and stews and other recipes. However, if you evaporate the water off of that dish that has been seasoned with salt, you end up with salt crystals. They point out that even in other religions such as Islam and Judaism, salt seals a bargain instead of just giving your word because of how immutable the quality of salt is. This is why salt symbolizes a long-lasting friendship and relationship between people. It is also the symbol of God's everlasting love for us, for his love endures forever, Psalm 136. Indeed, indeed. And this, was his, this is what's going on here. These are covenants that are made with the triune God, with his people. They're signs of his Fidelity to them, to them, 
and it's supposed to be of their fidelity to them to to him and we saw yesterday of their their whoring their their adulteries their spiritual immoralities that he would call that he would point out they had not been faithful and yet there was a covenant of salt there it's very interesting mark also used i mean there's there's plenty of places here in the new testament as well where salt is used and there's there's a number of other places in fact in the old testament you will read uh passages like judges uh chapter 9 you will read where they go in and they spread salt across the fields of their enemies and what was that to do it was to kill their crops it was to kill the crops there um, a desolate land there are several passages in the old testament that references uh, the salt being in the land and nothing grows there because of it being spread out in the land. And referencing certain judgments, Jesus speaks in Mark chapter 9, and he says this, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. By the way, let me tell you something. That isn't just about the pedophiles. This is about people who lead the little ones astray. We can name all kinds of people, both in politics and in the church, who do that stuff. Okay? But he says this, It's better for them that they have a millstone uh, hanged around about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost his saltiness, Wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. It's very interesting. It talks about all these things about getting rid of stuff. And I don't think that Jesus has in mind, go over there and chop your hand off, pop your eyeball out or any of that, cut your foot off. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying whatever it takes to rid yourself of sin and such, do it. Whatever it is that's holding you up, friend, whatever the thing is that that seems to have your attention, it seems to be the thorn in your flesh, it seems to be that thing that seems to have its hooks in you, whatever is leading you to that, get rid of it. I think that's what he's saying. Whatever's keeping you from following the king in the kingdom, get rid of it. But then he talks about having salt in ourselves and have peace with one another. Keep in mind the things that we've talked about because we're going we're gonna to make reference to this as we go along. 
in the New Testament, again, many, many places that we could point to, but specifically this passage that we had from Jesus. He talks about being the salt of the earth. Now, for a lot of people, they'll say, well, we've got to do this, and we've got to do that, and we've got to be a part of this. And The thing that's holding this society together in God's grace is the means that he's given. I'm not saying he can't hold it together. The Bible says he holds all things together by the word of his, prior, uh, the word of his power. My son and I were praying that this morning, um, recognizing that God holds all things together by the word of his power. And that's a fascinating concept in and of itself because we're told by the scientists that, you know, there's these things called atoms and they're bouncing against each other and they can't figure out why they don't just fly apart. Well, they don't fly apart because the word of King Jesus keeps them together. It's the word of his power, just like he keeps us together. You guys ever read Isaiah chapter six? And Isaiah sees the king high and lifted up as his uh, train filling the temple, seated on his throne, and Isaiah sees him, and he goes, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. I am literally, he's literally saying, I'm, I'm disintegrating. I'm coming apart. What keeps him together? The word of his power. The word of God's power. But he talks about, his disciples as the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I realize that in our country, at least how the government was officially set up, that the issue was that you would have God, you would have at least professed godly men, they would have been examined, they would have been known, their character would have been known in the States. They had a religious test oath. It was a very simple one, but they did have one. And I'm not, I'm not under any illusion that all those men who raised their hand and said they believed in the Bible as authoritative and they believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world, I'm not under any illusion that all those men were believers. And that there were some wicked ones among them. I'm not under any illusion of that. But at least they had that standard that was set up that had to be done. One of the interesting things about the U.S. Constitution, you know, it has a, you can't offer a religious test those for offices that are held. One one things that you'll one of the things you'll notice if you go back in history, several of the states had religious test those. They began to abandon those to be in accordance with the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Delaware, I think, was one of the first ones, like almost immediately, if I, if I recall correctly. They were one of the first ones to abandon that stuff. But the church is to be there to be the preservative of the society. It's been called the moral compass of society. The scripture calls us the, those who hold, we're the pillars of truth. We're to be those who hold up the truth to men who are supposed to minister in the name of God. Not just in the church, but outside the church. Oh, well, Tim, you know, there was, there's all kinds of evil men that's been real. Yeah, there have been. There have been. And I want you to understand, there is a difference between when something is referred to as wicked and evil and when you have a man who sinned. 
God didn't pull back the claim that David was a man after his, God's own heart, even though he had committed great sin. And so we, we must keep a distinction there. However, the church is to be that that exposes the darkness. That comes from Ephesians 5.11. We're to reprove it. We're not to join in with it. We're to reprove it. We're to expose it for what it is. And we're to point to the scriptures as to why it's evil. We're not to just to pull that stuff out of our own mind. That's how we get in a lot of trouble today. Uh, that's how we get some of these, these man-made laws that are on the books. The pretended legislation. The pretended crimes. And people get sucked into that. The church has it too. Pretended sins. I played for you that guy, uh, I don't even know who it was, but he's clearly a false teacher, coming on saying, uh, if you have a beard, this guy doesn't have any hair on his head, he doesn't have any hair on his face, um, and he says, if you've got a beard, well, you're worldly. <laughs> like, what? <sighs> you get stuff like that. You get the goofiness of certain things that have been, that can be sin. I'm, I'm not saying you can't use them to sin, but they're made in this fashion to where they distort what the truth is. In this country, we, they tried to put in prohibition. They had to take it out. Why? Because they created a ruckus. I mean, it, they just created a mess. Because even God doesn't forbid alcohol. He forbids drunkenness. But he doesn't forbid alcohol. And we've got people who want to take different kinds of plants. I mean, we had a story the other day. Uh, the cop beat this woman. I, I think he beat this woman over some kratom. What does Genesis 1 say? Every seed-bearing plant is good, right? It was very good. If men abuse it, that's one thing. They're not, they're not supposed to abuse what God has given. But if that's true, Martin Luther had made a reference to wine and women. He says, well, if, if these things are going to be sinful and all, we need to get rid of the women and we need to pour out all the wine. But that's not what they do. That would just be foolish, wouldn't it? If a man's going to look at a woman and he's going to lust after her, does that mean we need to get rid of the women too? No, that's just foolish. Man needs to have his heart changed. He needs to be repentant. Same thing is true with all these other things. And so the church is to be that, that the people, the followers of Christ are to be those who uphold the word of God so that men are not allowed to just suppress it without somebody cranking the box. And I, I give this illustration. There was a man years ago uh, that we worked with, and he gave this illustration and talking about Romans 1, where he talks about men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know God's there, okay? And that's the truth they want to suppress. There is no such thing as an atheist. You can say it all day long, and I know better. Because the scripture tells me that you know better. There's no such thing really as an agnostic. They know too. They've just suppressed it. And some have done a better job in suppressing it. it but it's like a jack-in-the-box. You guys know what I'm talking about? I think they still make those things. Little tin box. And it's got like, I don't know, I guess they put different things in it now. They put those creepy clowns in there and all. 
and you got a lid on it and you got a little crank on the side and you crank that thing does right and then when it gets to the end of the song the top flies open and the clown pops out right well that take the clown as the truth if you will i know it's a bad metaphor there but take the clown as the truth what men do is they take the truth about god because Paul says they know it. They know his eternal power and Godhead. They know that his wrath is revealed from heaven every day against all ungodliness. And they take the truth. They take that clown. They, they push him down. They close the cover on it. It is the job of the people of God to crank the music, as it were. To make the truth pop up. To hold the truth in front of them so that they see it. In hopes that... God will use that truth by his spirit to renew them, to give them the new birth, to forgive them of their sin, to grant to them repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. That is the job of the church. That is part of what discipling is. That's a part of it, the initial effects of it. The other part are things like what our friend Sam Childers we had on a couple of weeks ago said. It's not just to see men saved. It is to see men growing and walking in the ways of the Lord. That's going to teach them, if they've not been workers, that's going to teach them to work. If they've not been generous and kind with others, it's to teach them kindness. It's to teach them generosity. If they've not been those who've opened up their homes, it is to teach them to be hospitable. If they've been those who've been beating their wives, it is to teach them to love their wives. If they have not been teaching their children, they're to be taught how to teach their children. That's all part of discipleship. If they've not been praying, they need to learn how to pray. And what to pray. Where they don't know the scriptures, where they don't know how to handle, or they don't know about real lawful money, they need to be taught those things. Where they don't know what the law is, what a just law and a just punishment for breaking that law is, they need to be taught those things. This is the responsibility of the saltiness of the church. That's what the saltiness is supposed to do. I was reading a book um, my friend Mr. Wordsworth in the chat recommended uh, sometime back, and I am almost at the end. It's a short book, but... My time for actual reading, I, most of my, it's not reading, it's hearing. It's, uh, I listen to books on Audible now uh, because it's just easier for me to, to do some things. But um, on the weekends, I get a little bit of time in between things where I've been reading uh, this, this book. And one of the guys says, you know, it, it would be such a travesty. I forget the exact words. I was going to pull it up, but then I, I forgot where I, I had it and I didn't mark it in the uh in the Kindle version that I had, but he said something that would be a terrible thing for the church just to fall into politics. It'd be a terrible thing to just fall into politics. That that's where we think we, you know, wield our power. Now, I think we do have, or at least we used to in this country, we used to have some kind of political power, but that was expressed in and through what the Word of God had said. Now, our influence is just 
basically with our voice in many cases. Now, there are some people who get in office who will actually seek to uphold the law and do what's right before the people. Praise God for those, those men and those women. But the fact of the matter is we're to be those who hold that up to show it for what it is. Let me, let me take you back again to the Old Testament. What were the prophets sent to do? What were they sent to do? They were sent to the wicked kings and the priests and the people when they were violating God's law. That's a political message. It's a, it's a spiritual message, no question about it, but it's also a political message. And they would always call them to repentance. They would show them what they did, how it was in violation of God's law, and they would call them to repentance. Is this not what the church does? We go to the world and we hold up the word of God. We hold up the law of God and we say, here's what God has said. You're in violation of that law. And we call men to repentance. And instead of a sacrifice like what we read here, which, by the way, Hebrews 10 tells us. Let me just pull that up. I, I didn't have that up. But uh, Hebrews 10 tells us something about these sacrifices. And I think it's important because some people will mix this up. And they actually think, I mean, they actually think that men in the Old Testament were saved by obeying the law having the sacrifices and all this other stuff. But that's not what the scripture says. Hebrews chapter 10, listen to this. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. So what when, when we're talking about law in this passage, we're not talking about the moral law, the, the Ten Commandments. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about all of the stuff contained in the law, the worship here, the, some of the things that we read earlier, uh, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, the, the, the garments of the priest, the utensils they use, the altar, the incense, the holy of holies, all this stuff. That's what we're talking about. Those things were a shadow of good things to come. What good things? The good things that came in the reality of what those things were a picture of, the person of Jesus Christ. They can never... With those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Can't do it. All that, all the trappings of those things, they were meant to be a picture book so the people could see what God was going to send as a reality. His Messiah. And then he says this, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins each year. Now listen, for it is not possible. It is not possible. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. You get that? It's not possible. Didn't matter how many sacrifices you had, they never took away sin. They were a picture of the one who would take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, this is Christ, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. God made the body of Christ in order that it might be a perfect sacrifice. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. 
Then said I, Lo, I come, and the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God, above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that's the old covenant, that he may establish the second, that's the new covenant, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. If you're a Roman Catholic, listen very carefully. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once, once, once for all. And he goes on and he says, Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never, ever take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. What's going on in the Mass? See, this is what an apostate church does. It does not hold up the truth. An apostate church wants to hold mass so they can have the re-offering of the one-time sacrifice of Christ. They want to continually humiliate Christ. This is why I find it idolatrous that men will try to play the part of Jesus. Jesus is not a man anymore. He's not a baby anymore. He's not in his humiliation anymore. He is in his exaltation. What did we just read there? He's, wait, he's putting all his enemies under his feet. He is in his exaltation. He does not look like he, do, he did when he was here. He doesn't. Go read Romans, or Revelation chapter 1. You'll see. He is glorified. And the church needs to hold this image of Christ up. They need to hold... His word up. That is being the salt of the earth. That is preserving the society. That is holding the evil back. And that is why they want to kill us. Now, they won't tell you that. Well, some will. Get somebody like a Noah Harari. I mean, that guy is so reprobate, he just blurts it right out. But many won't tell you that's what they want to do. They want to get rid of the image of God the Word of God, anybody that confronts their sin so that they can live in their reprobate state of mind. And it is the job of the church not to let it happen, not to let them live like that. We're out of time here. Bradley, be with you at 3. We'll be back with you in the morning at 6 a.m. Be the salt, be the light today. In Jesus' name, see you.